Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If ever there was a word that needed to be retired, it's retirement. The kind of mental picture this word conjures up could be sunny beaches and no longer having to set an alarm clock, or a stressful feeling about how much longer you will need to work to afford such a lifestyle. I will be joined by the FT Money columnist Don Ezra, who's written a new book called Life 2 to help listeners tackle this dilemma. And if you're heading off on holiday soon, you'll probably be worried by reports of strikes at the airports and also the cost of changing money before you go. I'll have some top tips for listeners at the end of the show. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. My next guest argues that the word retirement is no longer fit for purpose. These days, we hope to live an active life for longer, and stopping work completely is not the default plan. Now, depending on how much money we've set aside, we might need to keep working for longer or more likely do something a bit different in our later years. But how on earth do we plan financially for this? Well, joining me now in the studio is Don Ezra, the author and FT Money columnist. Welcome, Don. Thanks, Claire. I've listened to this. I've never been on this side. (laughs) Well, let's hope you enjoy the experience because there's no such thing as retirement for you, is there? No, you've written a book to help people get to grips with how times are changing, which we're going to talk about in the podcast today. And it's called Life 2. Why did you call it Life 2? Well, I didn't want to call it retirement because retirement is a word. It's a concept that has outlived its use. It, it's time to retire it itself. Um, it, it, it's got all these connotations of finality, of decrepitude, all Pipes this stuff. and slippers. That, yeah, exactly. Whereas really, this, these days, it ought to be the start of a new life. And so I, I've been calling it life after work. And a friend of mine said, well, you mean life after full-time work, don't you? Because it's not just any work, it's after full-time work. Yes, yes, that's right. Life after full-time work. That's a mouthful if you have to keep saying it. So I thought, can I I make an acronym out of it? Life after full-time work, L-A-F-T-W-O. What does that spell? Laugh too. And I thought, oh, that's how my Texan friends would say life too. (laughs) And, And all of a sudden, when I said life too... Everything that I'd been thinking for years, stray ideas, fell into place and found a structure. So this is this is a life in its own right. Um, it, it's potentially happier than life one. It was as if I had random jigsaw puzzle pieces and someone had suddenly given me the box they came in. And here was the picture on the box showing how all the pieces fit together. 
Well, it's a fantastic analogy, but to prepare for our second life, if you like, we need to educate ourselves just as we do for our first life. And this education should ideally happen 20 years or more, you think, before we aim to make the transition to life number two. I, I would say probably 20 years or thereabouts. I'm not sure about more. I think of 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 getting to life two as getting started, getting serious and getting set. This is the getting serious state. Getting started, just get anything going uh, automatically so you don't have to worry about it. But I've read that when we reach about 50, maybe that's a turning point. Regret tends to start and we, we, we start saying things like, I wish I'd started saving earlier. I wish I'd started doing different things. And then after that, anxiety starts and we start getting really nervous about things as we approach retirement. And it, it's a big thing. It affects our health. It affects our workplace productivity and so on, which is a shame because it's absolutely unnecessary. We wouldn't dream of entering life one, our working life, without an education. Imagine mm-hmm. a society that had, I mean, these days you couldn't imagine that. But we've, we've never thought about education for life two. It would be so helpful to relieve stress, uh, psychological stress, financial stress, etc. And that's why I, be, I even suggest on occasion to employers that they should actually pay their employees to get that education. It's what's the expression, a win-win proposition. Well, exactly. And it's about so much more than financials, although obviously the workplace is the location for building up and accumulating a lot of our savings for life too. But to work out how much we need and how much we might want to save to get out of life too, you've summarised some practical questions that people could ask themselves. Yes. And in fact, even the thought of questions leads me to think about the psychological side before the financial side. Let's get to the financial side. But on on the psychological side, there are questions we should ask ourselves. There, there are no right answers that fit everyone. So sometimes I think the best way to help people is to frame questions and say, if you can answer these for yourself, then your answers will help you. And in my research, I, I identified many sets of helpful questions. And there's there's one set in particular that helps people to understand themselves and their goals better. Because to make the most of life too, you need something to live on. You also need something to live for. And to identify the purpose, the something to live for bit, I came across these three questions. So question number one, you have all the money you need. How would you live your life? And then question number two, you've just found out you have five to ten years to live. How will you change your life? And question number three, you've just found out you have 24 hours to live. What are your regrets? Now, I really like those questions. I would urge listeners at home, we're going to do a bit of triage now because I've come up with some answers for Don. He doesn't know what I'm going to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk through those. But while we're doing that, do be thinking at home of your own answers to these questions. And if you would like to share them with us, we'll feature some of the best ones in FT Money and on the next podcast. You can email us money at ft.com and I will start with the question. So you have all the money you need, Claire Barrett. How would you live your life? Well, I have to say, Don, my first thought as a former property journalist was bricks and mortar. And I thought, gosh, if I had all of the money I needed, then I would have a freehold house in Highbury 
in North London, I would have another place by the coast somewhere, probably um, down near Exeter where our son lives. And I would spend my time shuttling between the two of those, doing them up. And then I thought, hang on a minute. Even if I had all of the money I needed, is this really what I want? Having two enormous liabilities, which I would have to spend money on doing up to, you know, pump money into the running costs um, every year. You know, we've got a friend who has a house with a swimming pool and the amount of money that it costs him to maintain this swimming pool. When I found out that, I didn't want the swimming pool anymore. That ceased to become a dream. And also I thought, well, having all the money you need is not the same as having all the time that you need. So maybe I should be honest and say that in actual fact, my expectations are a little bit more simplistic and also realistic because let's face it, I'm never going to be able to afford to spend five million pounds on a <laughs> on a house in Highbury next to Mario Delicatessen, which is a place where I'm spending far too much of my own money at the moment. But so this, this is your dream. That's okay. Yeah. So I think having having one property and a camper van, frankly, would do me. And then it's a holiday home on wheels, and I can drive wherever I want. You. I found out the other week you can even ship them to New Zealand. You ship your camper van over there, then you fly pick up the camper van, drive around for a few months and then ship it back. You're home on wheels. Yeah, exactly. So um, so that's how I would live my life if I had all the money I needed. How was my my thinking on that one? Uh, Pretty good. Because (laughs) typically the answer to that question leads to what would I like to have Mm. more than anything else? So here's what you would like to have more than anything else. And and I I think you're very clear on that. So so move on to the next one. Okay, so the next question is, I have just found out that I have five to ten years to live. How would you change your life? Now, I have to say this question resonated with me particularly because about seven years ago, my father found out that he had cancer. Not immediately something that was going to kill him, but something that was slow and would take a long time to develop. So as a family... We've already thought through this question. We were told he had five to ten years to live. How would we all change our lives? And the answer to that is the same as my answer to you, which is do more of the things that you love. And as a family, we go on a lot more holidays than we used to. We make a lot more time to spend together, even if it's just to catch up on the phone rather than in person. There's definitely, we feel like we've, you know, we've had a wake-up call. And I think... Back of, of all of the things that we've done, you know, since the terrible day when the diagnosis arrived. And I think, well, actually, we've had so much more of a better life in a way because of that happening. But then in terms of how I would change my own life if I found out that I had five to ten years to live, obviously I would want to travel more. But I suppose in terms of my job, I would want to be more creative and do less management stuff, which I suspect is what a lot of listeners out there might be might be thinking too about how they can reshape. It, it certainly was was what I did. I was I was in management and getting no satisfaction out of it. I wanted to be more directly involved. But I noticed what you've done in switching from question one to question two is you've moved subtly from what I'd like to have to what I'd like to do. Yes. And I think that helps enormously. And in support of all this sort of thing. Um, I remember interviewing uh, the author Jonathan Clements once, and one of the things he said stuck in my mind. He said, uh, 
experiences bring memories. Possessions bring repair bills. And so you've, <laughs> you've switched from what would I like to have to what would I like to do. And I think that's absolutely wonderful because now you're getting much more clarity about the things that will make your life more fulfilling. Well, that's very good. So now move on to the third question, which is a bit more drastic. You have just found out you have 24 hours to live. What are your regrets? Yes, it's no longer what you're going to pack into your 24 hours. It's too late now. Yes, exactly, which is a horrible feeling. I mean, I think my biggest feeling thinking about this question was, you know, my biggest regret would be not living to see my family grow up, my stepchildren, my, my nephews, and in particular not being able to, you know, kind of like help them and influence them in your life. I think there would be a lot of letter writing going on in the in the last few hours saying, you know, always remember this or, you know, do that because I'm such a, a big kind of provider of advice to them all at the moment, as you would expect, being the money editor. They, they rather listen to me or money matters. But in terms of more esoteric things, what are your regrets? Um, <laughs> I have to say, sitting in my flat at the weekend looking around, I thought, well, one of my regrets would be not reading all of these bloody books <laughs> sitting around <laughs> because you need so much time to read books. And I'm a great one for like, you know, buying far too many books in a second-hand bookshop and then and then not really getting around to um to to reading them and then when I do have a day off like I did last week and I can spend you know four or five hours uninterrupted when nobody is there uh, just reading it's just the most glorious it's hobby and I think like oh why don't I spend more time doing this instead of you know looking on social media and I guess my other regret would have to be not writing a book because I've always wanted to do that and I've just never been able to find the time to do it. And there are some more personal things that I would say that I would probably regret not getting married sooner, maybe. But I just think there's no point in regretting things that you can't change. Right. And in a way, if this unfortunate circumstance were to occur, um, the idea of not being there to see your family's future isn't something you can avoid. No. But what this has clarified for you, though, is that what is important is who you want to be. So we've been what you want to have, what you want to do. Now it's who's the person you want to be. And quite clearly, one of the characteristics you want to describe you is you want to be a mentor mm. because this is what you're giving. So it, it's not just what would I like, it's what can I give. And both the reading and the writing are involved with mentoring, with getting things in, processing them, and then producing them in writing as well. And so the idea of leaving something of yourself behind is obviously very, very important to you, whether it's to the general public through your writing or whether it's to your family and friends as a mentor. Uh, this is obviously very, very important to you. And I think just in answering these three questions, imagine that you are just someone working, someone whose work defines you, your business card says who you are. And the idea of suddenly giving up that business card and saying, retired. <laughs> well, yes. Um, it, in my case, well, very few people like that. They hate that. And in fact, when I talk at conferences and they say former so-and-so, former so-and-so, I say, no, 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 please put in happily retired because actually achieving retirement as a happy status is something really important. And I think in answering these three questions, fortunately, we can take away the the bad news that drives the scenario and just say, what do you get out of it? There's so much you have already got out of this that can shape 
the direction of what you want to do and how you want to spend your life. And so when you reach life too, uh, you obviously aren't going to have any problem at all because you've actually thought very seriously about this and come up with some, some awfully sensitive answers. Oh, well I'm, well, I'm glad you think so. If you're listening at home and thinking, yeah, I've got some better answers to these questions than you have, then do share them with us. You can do so anonymously or we can read out your name. Send in your ideas to money at ft.com. And as I said, we'll feature some of the best answers on a future edition of this podcast. Actually, let, let me just pick up on something there. So if they have better ideas, I don't think there are better ideas. I think the nice thing about this set of questions is that there is no right set of answers. They are just means of getting us to defining what suits ourselves. And so something that's better for you may be worse for someone else and what they might think is better than yours would not appeal to you at all. And I think I think part of education is shaping questions that enable people to apply the answers to their own situation. And I think that's part of the education of life too. And that's what I've tried to do in the book as well, to say at the end of each of the walks through this territory of the land of life too, I have some questions to ask yourself. There are no right or wrong answers, but your answers will shape the way you think about it. Mm, and that's made me think of another thing. I've got to ask my husband all of these questions because if his, if his answers are drastically different from mine, then we could have a problem. It's good to discover it. <laughs> but to get things more firmly back on a financial footing, these kinds of questions, fascinating as they are, how can they help us with the nuts and bolts of retirement planning? Well, I, the simplest way to think of it is just it's very satisfying to be living the sort of life that pleases you, where you can define and be the, the person you want to be, exactly as we've just been talking about. But the other half of the goal is having something to live on, not just having something to live for. And typically the big financial worry is, I don't think I have a lot. Will I outlive my assets? Mm. Um, there are all kinds of ways of looking at that. I always start off with a very useful rule of thumb about making your money last. One I've heard about is the thousand pound rule. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. Okay, heard well, it's, it's very simple. It says that for, for every thousand pounds you have available, typically it generates about a pound a week for the rest of your life. So if you have a hundred thousand pounds, it would make about a hundred pounds a week available. And and that's a very, very quick rule of thumb. So if you have £100,000, if you need £50 a week, no problem. If you need £200 a week, big problem. So at least you start with an order of magnitude of, of about 100 a week. The interesting thing is then that there are calculators available to customize that rule of thumb to your own circumstances. There's one free on my website, for example. And I would imagine the biggest lever to pull with a question like that is at what point you stop work. Yes, yes. And that's the nice thing about the calculators, that they allow you to change different variables and say, what if this, what if that? And unquestionably, the most powerful lever to pull is when you actually retire. Because think of retiring later. Three interesting things happen. One is you save more, so there is more money available to draw down. You have extra investment return, so there is more money to draw down, and you have a shorter period to draw it down. Mm. And that, too, raises the amount you can draw down. So it's easily the biggest thing of all. And in fact, I actually had a conversation with someone who was appalled to find that they needed to postpone retirement for five years in order to have enough money not to have to sell the home. And suddenly, 
it made them think, hang on a sec, those five years of work are the equivalent of being able to have our home forever as opposed to having to sell it in order to generate the lifestyle we want. And suddenly it changed the mindset. And I, and I think sometimes just reframing questions helps give you a different mindset. Well, finally, I really loved the, the chapter, the walk in your book, dedicated to how adults can talk about money and the passing on of money with their adult children. Can you tell us some of your top tips on that? <laughs> yes, yes. I laugh because um, we've, act, we've done this with, with our adult children and it, it's gone down in family legend as dad's decumulation talk. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine how much fun the kids make of it. But I, I think most families, certainly in generations past, never had this kind of conversation. I know my wife Susan and I never had this conversation with our parents. So when we sat down with the kids and said, we'd, we'd like to talk about this, uh, they were a bit suspicious. And we said, well, no, we, you don't have to say anything. We just want to let you know where we stand and what our plans are. So in a way, there are sort of three kinds of things you can do in general. The first is Tell your children where the important documents are and where they can be found, etc., 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 preferably all in one place, um, who to get in touch with, not mm. just the doctor, the lawyer, and so on, but family and friends, their contact details, and so on. So all the notification stuff, they won't know typically because they're living their own lives. So that's step one. Step two is is what degree of involvement you want the kids to have. The first degree is just let's tell them about all these things. The second one is much more involved, and this is where we started, which is let's unveil for them our finances, our will, etc., etc. And this was Dad's decumulation talk. And it had the unexpected and very touching consequence that it made us all comfortable with discussing personal financial issues, their financial issues and our financial issues ever since. And so that, that was an unexpected bonus, which we, we hadn't expected. Um, we also told them about our life plans because one day it may become necessary for them to share responsibility for our lives or well, even yes. to take it over completely. The power of attorney. And yeah, and, and it's it's not just the power of attorney, but typically the, the kids wonder wonder what mum and dad would have wanted us to do if they were still compass mentis. And we don't want them to doubt. We've told them here's why we're doing what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And the more background they have, the more informed they are for their own comfort when the time comes to do whatever they need to for us. And um, it gives us peace of mind as well because at a time in the future when we won't even remember having done this, it gives us right now great, great peace of mind knowing we have done it. And by the way, that reminds me it's time to update it. <laughs> there's, there's, there, well, yeah, things have changed things since change. we since, since we last did. Yeah. It. There's one more. There's one more little tip, which is which is not a big deal. It's not a big deal, but emotionally it could be, and it potentially relieves the executor of a lot of angst by leaving instructions on on who should get which personal possessions. And I, again, not my idea. I came across an article in in the New York Times uh, that that expressed it this way. Just just think what it would be like on Christmas morning if your children ran downstairs and there were all these presents, big and small, bright and shiny, with no name tags on them. Can you imagine the free-for-all that would ensue? So having some ideas in advance and saying them about how you would like 
personal items to be distributed can actually save your executor an awful lot of angst. And and that that's a little thing. It's not financially significant, but emotionally it could be very significant. Well, thank you very much there to Don Ezra. Happily retired. Um, Don has written <laughs> all about the issues we've talked about on the podcast today for Tackling Life 2 in FT Money, which you can read online now on our website, ft.com slash money, which contains an extract from his book, Life 2, How to Get to and Enjoy What Used to Be Called Retirement. You can also buy that book online from Amazon in paperback or in their Kindle edition. And if you would like to read more articles on this topic, then do have a look at Next Act, the FT's content hub for readers in later life, which can be found on ft.com slash nextact. And all the articles on there are free to read. Now, if you're jetting off on holiday this weekend, whether it's a long or a short trip, you'll probably be worried about chaos at the airports. We've reported in the FT this week that lots of staff of different airlines, including British Airways and potentially Ryanair, could be striking this summer. And so could thousands of workers who actually work in the airports themselves. Heathrow and Gatwick and Stansted could potentially all be affected. So if that's not enough of a worry... The cost of changing your holiday money is another pitfall that listeners would be well advised to look out for. So who better to ask for some advice? Simon Calder, the BBC's travel money expert. Now, Simon couldn't come on the show today, but he sent me a little statement to read out that could help you in the event that you were caught up in this disruption. Now, at the moment, European air passenger rights stipulate compensation of 250 to 600 euros for passengers on flights that arrive three hours or more behind schedule. But an important thing to remember with this compensation is that the cause of the delay must be within the airline's control rather than an extraordinary circumstance, he says, such as the weather, a security alert, staff shortages, air traffic control, a particular problem this summer, or indeed strike action. Now, Simon says... Whatever the cause of the delay, airlines must provide an alternative flight as soon as possible on a rival carrier if need be, as well as your meals and accommodation as appropriate while the passenger is stranded. So thank you very much for that advice, Simon. There's more from Simon in a big report we've written in FT Money this weekend about where the strikes are likely to affect. And we've also put in some information for those passengers who do manage to jet off because they would be well advised to avoid changing their holiday money at the airport. Now, we all know that sterling has fallen in July by around 2% against the dollar this month, but the pound reached parity against both the dollar and the euro in most airport exchange booths some time ago, meaning if you change your money there at the last minute, you'll receive less than one euro or one dollar for every pound you exchange. Now, a recent study by FairFX, the holiday money specialist, has found that exchange rates being offered at UK airports are as much as 21% lower than the best market rate. So holiday makers who leave changing their money until the last minute could lose out by as much as €121 for every £500 exchanged, it says. Now, that's not the only rip-off to watch out for when you're on holiday. The post office has issued a warning this week about the cost of using bank cards abroad. Now, it says that these unexpected charges levied around 3% on any payments that you make on your UK debit card, could cost the average family £120 on holiday. Now, there is a way of getting around this. There's lots of digital challenger banks, Starling, Monzo and Revolut to name, but three that won't charge you these conversion fees. And they have very rapid online account opening facilities if you're about to travel. 
There are certain credit cards that also offer fee-free spending abroad, but if you use them to take money out of an ATM, be aware that interest will typically be charged from that day. And a final tip for you, even if you're savvy enough to get a fee-free plastic card to use for your spending money, watch out for those chip and pin terminals or cash points that ask if you want to pay in pounds rather than the local currency. This little rip-off is known as dynamic currency conversion and it means that the exchange rate on that transaction will be set by the merchant, which is unlikely to be one in your favour. Now, again, FairFX have done a study about this. They estimate that unsuspecting holidaymakers collectively pay out around £490 million in currency conversion fees. We say at FT Money, you should remember the mantra, never choose pounds when paying on plastic. Well, that's it for The Money Show this week. You can read more about all of these stories in the copy of FT Money that appears with your FT Weekend newspaper on Saturday or go to our website to read more, ft.com slash money. And if you want to get in touch with our team of experts, maybe even suggest a topic that we speak about on the podcast, email us, money at ft.com. Follow us on Twitter for the latest news updates at FT Money or check out our new page on LinkedIn. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else custom spray five and one only from rustoleum selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.